Section 12 of The Gleam in the North by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 12 After Sunset 1. Oh, my dear Ewan, said old Inverna Cree, and he reached across and replenished his nephew's glass. Oh, my dear Ewan, have you not had your fill of wandering, and that you cannot bide with us a few days? But Ewan shook his head. Oh, I would that I could, for I have, indeed, had my fill of wandering, near three months of it. But I must push on to Edinburgh to-morrow, to consult an advocate, as I told you, sir. Mid-March had come and passed, ere he finally sat at his uncle's board, not sorry to see silver and napery again, and to look forward to a comfortable bed. There had been difficulties and delays innumerable over leaving the island of Caen, and the want of a boat, stormy weather. Indeed, Ardroy had only crossed Loch Linne that morning early, before it was clear of the morning mists, and glad beyond measure to see Green Appin again at last, and the old white house, his mother's early home, standing high among its ancient oaks with his own kin in it. And now, supper being over, he was alone with his uncle, and the ladies having withdrawn. The middle-aged daughter, by his first wife, who kept house for the twice-widowed Alexander Stewart of Inverna Cree, and the pretty girl who was Ian's own sister, Ian himself, to Ewan's regret, was from home. The candlelight fell on Ewan's auburn head, and air of content, and shabby clothes. No others in the house would fit him, and on Inverna Cree's silver hair and deeply furrowed face. And to Ewan it seemed almost more strange in these last few years to see his uncle, so essentially a Highlander and a Jacobite of the old breed, in lowland garb, and without a scrap of tartan, and then to see himself thus clad. Looking thoughtfully at him now, he saw how greatly the death of his elder son at Culloden Moor had aged him. But at the moment there was content on the old man's face also, and though tempered by his nephew's refusal to contemplate a longer stay. "'Yes, I fear I must lose no more time,' resumed Ewan. "'I thought to be in Edinburgh, as you know, soon after Christmas, and now it is close upon Lady Day.' "'Aye,' said Inverna Cree. I, I doubted from what he told me at the time, that Ian somehow mismanaged that affair at the Narrows. Either he or that young Frenchified brother-in-law of yours, whom he brought here in your stead. Oh, no, sir, I assure you that he did not, protested his nephew warmly. Neither Ian nor Hector was a whit to blame for what happened. If there was a blunder, it was mine. I owe Ian more than I can easily repay. And if Hector had had his wish, we should have broken out of Fort William long before we did. Oh, but it was young Grant, nevertheless, who brought trouble upon you in the first instance. He told me so himself. Ewan could not repress a smile. Hector is indiscreet, he said, thinking of someone else who had remarked that of him. Yet I suppose he told you the whole story so that you've not truly been without news of me for centuries, as my cousins have just been complaining. Why, we've had much more recent news of you than Hector Grant's, 
exclaimed his uncle. They must have been teasing you, the jades, for they cannot have forgotten who brought it. Can you guess who it was, Ewan? Oh, I think so. Mr. Oliphant did make his way here, then, sir. Ewan's face had lit up. Oh, he did, said the old man with an air of satisfaction. We had the privilege of his presence under this roof for a sunnight, and he left unmolested at the end of it for Balakulish. It was from him that we learned of the truly Christian deed of charity to an enemy, which was the cause of your separation from him. But he feared, and justly, it seems, that you might have become a prisoner in Mingari Castle on account of it. Ewan had coloured vividly and turned his head away. I escaped the same day from Mingari, he said hurriedly. And then, after a second or two, Mr. Oliphant should have told you how unwillingly I was brought to that act. How, had it not been for his persuasion, I should not have done it at all. Then, my dear Ewan, I honour you the more for having done it, was his uncle's reply. But Mr. Oliphant said not a word of that. A saintly man, there are many here in Appin who will long remember with thankfulness his stay among us, which, under God, we owe to you. He left a letter for you, which I was near forgetting. Oh, my memory, Ewan, grows old, too. If you will come into my room, I will give it to you now. He rose, helping himself up by the table. Now fill your glass, nephew. Ewan rose and lifted it. The king, said Alexander Stewart, and they drank. In that house there was no need to pass their glasses over water jug or finger bowl, since King George of England existing to all who ever broke bread there merely as the elector of Hanover, and there was no other king than James the Third and Eighth to avoid pledging by that consecrated subterfuge. A tall, upright old man, though moving stiffly, Invernacree opened the door of his own study for his nephew. Oh, sit there, Ewan, under your mother's picture. Oh, it is good to see you there, and I like to remember, he added, looking him up and down, and that steward blood went to the making of that broad body of yours. Oh, I sometimes think that you are the finest piece of manhood ever I set eyes on. Oh, my dear uncle, murmured the subject of this encomium, considerably embarrassed. Oh, you must forgive an old man who has lost a son not unlike you. And no matter, sit down, Ioan Void, while I fetch you good Mr. Oliphant's letter. He, I assure you, could not say enough of you and what you had done for him. How oh, I cannot say enough of what he did for me, murmured Ewan, as he took the letter and put it into his pocket. And, in truth, I went with him into Arna Murchen, half in hopes of meeting Dr. Cameron there, in which I was disappointed. Do you know aught of the doctor's recent movements, Uncle Alexander? Nothing whatever. He did not come into Appen, and I have no notion where he may be now. Ian, though he alleged some other motive, has gone, I believe, to try to learn some news. The boy is made very restless by the rumours which go about. But rumours will not help us. I doubt our son went down upon Culloden Moor, Ewan. Oh, a man might have thought, objected his nephew, 
and that the son of the steward cause went down at Worcester fight. Yet, nine years afterwards, Charles Stewart was riding triumphantly into London. It is not yet nine years since Culloden. Old Alexander Stewart shook his head. The Lord's hand is heavy on his people. I never read in the two first psalms of the sixteenth morning of the month of the heathen coming into the Lord's inheritance, and the wild boar out of the wood, rooting up the Lord's vine, and much more, only too appropriate, without thinking of that sixteenth of April, seven years ago, and with good reason. You know, he went on, looking into the fire, and that when Alan's body was found, and there was a little psalter in his pocket, and it was doubled open at the seventy-ninth psalm, as if he had been reading it, while he waited there on the moor in the wind and the sleet. And there was his blood across the page. No, you never told me that, Uncle Alexander, said Ewan gently. Aye, it was so, and they brought the book to me afterwards. I put it away for a long time, though it was the last thing I had of his. But now I have the custom of reading the daily psalms out of it, to show that I gave him willingly to his God and his prince. Now, I'm never likely to forget the Culloden psalms. He was silent, sitting perfectly still, so that the leaping flames might have been casting their flicker on the chin and brow of a statue. His nephew looked at him with great pity and affection. I've sometimes wondered, began Inverna Cree again, whether the Almighty does not wish us to learn that his will is changed, and that for our many unfaithfulnesses he does not purpose at this time to restore the kingdom unto Israel. With the older school of Jacobites, religious and political principles were so much one and that it was perfectly natural to them to speak of one hope in terms of the other, and his language held no incongruity for Ewan. In moments of depression he had himself harboured the same doubt, and had given voice to it, as that evening with Archibald Cameron. But he was too young and vigorous to have it as an abiding thought, and he tried to comfort the old man now, pointing out that a new door had opened, from what Dr. Cameron had told him that if France would not and could not help, there were others willing to do so. Yes, admitted his uncle, it may be that all this long delay is but to try our faith. But I can recall Killicranky, and the victory that brought no gain. I fought at Sheriff Moor nearly forty years ago, and I remember the failure at Glenshiel the year you were born the failure which drove your father into exile. If this spring do not bring the assistance, which I hear vaguely spoken of on all sides since Dr. Cameron's arrival, and then our son has truly said, we shall never see the white rose bloom again. The hope of it is perhaps no more than the rainbow which spans the lock here so constantly between storms, or those streamers which you see in the northern sky at night. We have been seeing them of late, very bright. Oh, but they mean nothing. If it be not ill weather next day. They come too late. After sunset. Oh, but before dawn, suggested Ewan. 
<laughs> if you like, my dear boy, if you like, yes. You are young and may yet see a dawn. Oh, get you to bed now, and do not let an old man's faithlessness make you despond. Oh, good night, and may God bless you. Up in the room which had been his mother's as a girl, and which he always occupied when he visited Inverna Cree, Ewan broke the seal of Mr. Oliphant's letter. My dear son, wrote the old man, I think you will guess how often I have thought of you, and blessed you, and prayed for you, even as David prayed, and deliver my darling from the power of the dog. And I am sure that you were delivered, if not without scathe. And, I hope, my dear son, that you are not to pay by an unjust captivity for your good deed, which was good, even though it were done in the spirit of the man who said, I go not, and went. For you will remember that, for all his first refusing, it was he who was justified, and not the other. The unfortunate officer, your enemy, was still alive when the soldiers reached the place. I had written upon a piece of paper, which I then placed in his pocket, these words. If you recover, you owe it to a man whom you greatly injured. I would not mention your name, lest it brought harm upon you, and I thought, too, that you would not have wished it. But I wrote what I did for the man's own sake. It was right that he should know it. If, indeed, he would ever know anything again in this world. I had concealed myself, as I promised you, and I was not searched for. Moreover, I found help and shelter upon my road to Salem. Yet I greatly missed my son's strong arm and his heartening company. But I reflected that, even as he had been sent to me in my necessity, so he had been sent elsewhere in another's. Yet I have the hope, Angelos, that before long you will reach this house of your good uncle's, which has been so kind a haven to me, and where it has been my delight to speak of you. And the Lord bless and keep you, and lead you back safely to your own. Ewan put the letter carefully away in his breast, and going to the window stood looking out into the clear March night, and the five-mile width of Loch Linne, shining faintly, lay before him. Dark mountains lifted themselves on the farther side whence he had come. Shuna's island bulk lay to the right, and the castle on the islet down below stood warden over the inlet of lake. Away to the left a warm yellow moon was entangled in trees. But it was not under her rays that the water shone. Over the mountains facing him, though it was after ten at night, and the sky was irradiated with a soft white glow. As Ewan stood there, it grew in intensity and widened. A faint, perfectly straight shaft of the same unearthly light shot up into the sky, and then another. But Ardroyd was thinking of other things, of the old priest's letter, of how his presentiment about meeting one who had to do with Keith Wyndham had been fulfilled and of how strangely. It was not a new thought now. He had resembled his own small son, and his desire that vengeance should be meted out to the evil doer who had wrought him such an injury. He was wicked, 
It was right that he should be punished, had been Donald's cry of justification on that September evening. The idea still had power to raise in Ewan some of the rueful dismay which had swept over him when it had first presented itself, one morning when he was pacing the sandy shores of Col, half deafened by the green Atlantic surges and praying for the wind to change. But all reflections were merged now into an impatience to begin tomorrow's journey to Edinburgh, and the next milestone on the road which was to bring him back to his wife and home. He turned away from the window and began to make ready for bed. Yet when, after blowing out his candle, he went for a last look over the loch, he gave a smothered exclamation. And the moon was gone, vanquished, and the whole of the sky from northwest to northeast was pulsing with light with great eddying rivers and pools of that magic radiance. The miraculous glow was no longer a background to the dark mountains of Morven, nor did it now send forth those straight pencils of light. It streamed and billowed, as it seemed for miles, right over the housetop, and it was never still for an instant. It shimmered across the sky like ethereal banners, forever changing their shape like the swirling draperies of a throng of invisible dancers, as the Gallic indeed names the northern lights, like reflections flickering through the curtain of space from some mighty effulgence behind it. Ewan had often seen the aurora borealis, but he could not remember ever having seen it so fine at this time of year. For a while he lay and watched from his bed what he could see of those bright and soundless evolutions. And they were a commentary on his uncle's words this evening. But he was too tired, and the bed, after three months of hard and varied lying, and too seductive for him to stay awake and ponder the matter. When he woke some hours later and turned over, and the night was quite dark, all the wonderful white dance of flame in the heavens was gone as if it had never been. 2. The next day Ewan set out from Invernacree on his journey to Edinburgh, a gilly of his uncle's carrying his modest valise, and not his, in truth, but one of Ian's. He meant to go on foot through Benderloch to the ferry on the curve of Loch Etive at Bonnaw, and there in the little inn on the farther shore hoped to hire a horse. If he failed in this, he would have to trudge on for another twelve or thirteen miles into the next hostelry at Dalmally, beyond the pass of Brander and Loch Awe. The proud mass of Ben Cruachan, monarch of all the heights around, with a wreath of cloud veiling the snow upon his summit, frowned at the Cameron as he came along the northern shore of beautiful Etive towards the heart of Lorne. Ewan dismissed the gilly, took his valise and was rowed across the wind-rippled blue water. "'Is it true that the innkeeper here has horses for hire?' he asked, as he paid the ferryman on the farther shore. "'Aye, he has, and though but the one now. And the beast will not be hired out the day, however, for I saw him no later than noon.' The tiny inn under the three wind-bent pines looked as if it could scarcely provide a decent meal, still less a horse. Yet, somewhat to Ewan's surprise, 
there was a very well-appointed chaise standing outside it. But there seemed something wrong with this equipage, for one of the horses was out of the shafts, and the middle-aged postillion was talking earnestly to an elegantly dressed young man, presumably the traveller. Various ragged underlings of the hostelry, possessing no knowledge of English, vociferated around them. Ewan called one of these, told him he wanted a saddle-horse, and entered the inn to pay for its hire. He had some difficulty in finding the innkeeper, and the man had finally to be summoned. "'You have a saddle-horse for hire, I believe,' said Ardroy. "'For how many stages are you willing to let it out?' The Highlander seemed embarrassed. "'Oh, I fear that I cannot let you have it at all, sir. I have but the one horse for hire, and the young gentleman out there, who is returning from Dunstaffnage Castle to Edinburgh, requires it for his chase, and for one of his own horses has suddenly gone lame.' With instant resentment, Ewan thought, from Dunstaffnage, how a Campbell, of course, who thinks all belongs to him in Lorne. I would like to show him that he's wrong. But I need the horse to carry me, he said aloud, with an unwanted haughtiness, and the sprig of Clan Jermite must make shift with his remaining horse and go the slower. Oh, he's not a Campbell, sir, returned the innkeeper quickly. Oh, it is a Sassenach, a young English lord, returning from a visit to Dunstaffnage. Ewan was slightly mollified. Even an Englishman was preferable, on the whole, to a Campbell. Or perhaps, he suggested, if he's told that this horse of yours is the only means of my getting on my way, he will have the grace to relinquish it. Like the innkeeper, he had used the Gallic. The sentence was scarcely finished when a voice behind him made him start. He did not know why. "'Oh, it seems that there's now some difficulty about this horse of yours,' it said, addressing the landlord with some impatience. "'But I'm unable to understand what your people say. Why cannot I hire the horse, since it is for hire?' Ewan had turned and saw a very handsome youth clad in what he, somewhat cut off of late from such vanities, guessed to be the latest mode. "'I am myself the difficulty, I fear, sir,' he said civilly. "'I'd hoped to hire the horses far, at least, as Dalmally.' "'Hot the horses for the saddle,' explained the innkeeper to the young Englishman. "'Though, indeed, he's going very well in harness, too.' He looked from one client to the other, in evident perplexity. "'In that case, it would seem as if I must ride postillion,' observed Ardroy, with a recrudescence of annoyance. The younger traveller, English nobleman, if the innkeeper were correct, and came forward to the elder. He was not only extremely good-looking, but had a delightfully frank and boyish expression, and, indeed, he was not very much more than a boy. Oh, sir, could we not come to some arrangement, if we take the same road, and if I have unwittingly disappointed you of a horse? There's plenty of room in my chaise, if you would do me the honour of driving in it. The offer was made so spontaneously, and speed was so desirable, that Ewan was tempted by it. Oh, "'You are too kind, sir,' he said, hesitating. "'I should be incommoding you.' "'Oh, not in the least, I assure you,' declared the agreeable young traveller. "'There's ample room, for I left my man behind in Edinburgh, 
and it would be a pleasure to have a companion. My name is Aveling, Viscount Aveling. And mine is Cameron, replied Ewan, but he did not add, of Ardroy. It flashed through his mind as ironical that a young English Whig, for Lord Aveling must be of Whig sympathies, or he would not have been visiting Campbell of Dunstaffnet, should propose to take the road with a man who not three months ago had escaped from government hands at Fort William. Then you will give me the honour of your company, sir, asked the young man eagerly. Otherwise I shall feel bound to surrender the horse to you, and I will not disguise that I am anxious to reach Edinburgh with as little delay as possible. He said this with something of a joyous air, as though some good fortune awaited him at his journey's end. I hope to lie tonight at Dalmally, he went on, and I think that even on horseback you would hardly go beyond that, and for the next stage is, I am told, a long one. And no, that is quite true, admitted Ewan, and so, my lord, I will with gratitude take advantage of your very obliging proposal. And, if we are to be fellow travellers, may I not propose in my turn, that before taking the road in company, you should join me in a bottle of claret? As they went together to the little eating-room, he reflected that the boy was exceptionally trusting. Now he knows nothing of me, and no more than I know of him, if it comes to that. Then for a moment he wondered whether he were acting unfairly by this friendly youth in taking advantage of his offer, but to explain his own position, and perhaps thereby deprive himself of the means of proceeding quickly, was to be over-scrupulous. So they sat down to some indifferent claret, and over it the suddenly blossoming acquaintance ripened as quickly to a very unlooked-for harvest. Lord Aveling seemed to Ardroy a really charming and attractive young man, unspoiled, so far as he could judge, by the fashionable world of routs and coffee-houses in which he probably moved. For it transpired after a while that he was the only son of the Earl of Stowe, whose name was known even in the Highlands. It appeared, also, that he was really visiting in Edinburgh, and had only gone to Dunstaffnage on a short stay, for which he was now returning. He had never been in Scotland before, he said, and, but for a very particular circumstance, would not have come now, because the country, and especially the Highlands, held a most painful association for him, he having lost a brother there in the late rebellion. Ewan said that he was sorry to hear it. He was a soldier, I presume. The young man nodded. His bright face had saddened, and, looking down, he said as though to himself, oh, I am ashamed, now, that I did not attempt the pilgrimage when I was at Dunstaffnage. I suppose, sir, he went on rather hesitatingly, that you do not chance to know a wild spot on the coast, and farther north, and called Morar. Ewan put down his wine-glass very suddenly, and the colour leaving his face. He tried to speak, and could not. But his companion went on, without waiting for an answer. It was there that my brother met his death, Mr. Cameron. And he was not killed in fair fight. He was murdered. That is why I do not like the Highlands. Yet I wish time had permitted of my going to Mora. A moment Ewan stared, as though the handsome speaker were himself a ghost. 
A Keith of Wyndham's brother. How could it be true? And the tiny inn parlour was gone, and he was kneeling again in the moonlight on that blood-stained sand. He did not know that he had put his hand over his eyes. And then the voice that was, he knew it now, so like Keith's, was asking him breathlessly, fiercely, Oh, where did you get that ring? Oh, my God, where did you get it? Ewan dropped his hand and looked up almost dazedly at the young Englishman, who was on his feet, leaning over the table, with a face as white as his own, and eyes suddenly grown hard and accusing. He gave it to me. It was in my arms that he died at Morar, and the victim of a terrible mistake. A mistake, you say. He was killed, and then, in the place of another. No, no, not that kind of mistake. My unfortunate foster brother. Your foster brother was the murderer. And by whose orders? Yours? Ewan gave a strangled cry, and leapt then to his own feet, and faced this stern, almost unrecognizable young accuser. Oh, God forgive you for the suggestion! I wished that day, and that Lachlan's dirk had been in my own breast. Major Wyndham was my friend, Lord Aveling, my saviour. And yet he came to his death through me. And you are his brother. I felt. Yes, that was it. You have his voice. I am his brother of the half-blood, said the young Viscount, standing very still and looking hard at him. My mother was his mother also. And so, you wear his ring. But, if you've not his blood upon your hands, what do you mean by saying that he came to his death through you? And Ewan caught his breath. His blood on my hands, if it is on anyone's, and besides poor deluded Lachlan's, it is on those of another British officer who... He stopped suddenly, and then went on, who has probably gone to his account by this time, and you're prepared to swear. Oh, great God, should I have worn his ring all these years, if what you think were true? He drew it off his finger, and was the last thing he did, and put it into my hand. I will swear it. He glanced down in search of the dirk, which he might not wear, and made a little gesture of desperation. Oh, I cannot. I've no weapon. Let that pass. I will take your word, said the young Englishman, speaking with difficulty. I can see that what you say is true, and I ask your pardon for my suspicions. No one, indeed, could well have doubted that it was grief, not guilt, which had made the face of this Highland gentleman so drawn. But, added Lord Aveling, after a moment, I should be greatly your debtor if you could bring yourself to tell me a little more. All we heard was that while on patrol duty in the western coast in the August of forty-six, my unfortunate brother was murdered by a Highlander, either Cameron or MacDonald, and was buried where he died. It was impossible, in the then unsettled state of the country, to have his body exhumed and brought to England. And now, I suppose, if this place be as wild as we have heard, his very grave is forgotten. No. It is not forgotten, answered Ewan, in a much quieter voice. I've been there twice. 
I was there last year. And there's a stone I had put. He did not love the highlands over much, yet tis a peaceful and a beautiful spot, Lord Aveling, and though the wind blows sometimes, and the sand is very white there, and when the moon is full. He broke off, and stood with his deep-set blue eyes steady and fixed, and the young man staring at him a trifle awed, since he had heard of the second sight, and the speaker was a Highlander. But Ardroy was seeing the past, not the future, and after a moment sat down again at the table, and covered his face with his hands. His half-drained glass rolled over, and the claret stain widened on the coarse cloth. Keith Wyndham's brother stood looking down at him, until, an instant or two later, there came a knock at the door, when he went to it and dismissed the intruder, the postillion anxious for his lordship to start. When he came back, Ardroy had removed his hands and regained control of himself. "'Since we have met so strangely, you would perhaps desire me to tell you the whole story, my lord.' And sitting there, sometimes gazing with a strange expression at the stain on the cloth, sometimes looking as if he saw nothing, Ewan told it to the young man in detail. End of section 12「Lord Aveling's elderly postillion may well have wondered when, at last, the two gentlemen came out to take their places in the chaise why they both looked so grave and pale. Yet, since he had been fidgeting over the delay, to see them come at all was welcome. He whipped up his horses, and soon the travellers, not much regarding it, had had their last glimpse of lovely Etiv, had crossed the tumbling awe, and began to enter the pass of Brander. Close above them were the mighty flanks of Cruachan, on the right the still black water, bewitched into strange immobility, before it rushed into Loch Etiv, but streaked with long threads of white as they approached its birthplace in Loch Awe. The emotions of the inn had left both Ewan and Lord Aveling rather silent, but at last the younger man said, indicating the view from his window, "'As you say, Mr. Cameron, my poor brother did not like the Highlands. I, too, find them, with exceptions, uncongenial.' This gloomy defile, for instance, and the great mountain beneath which we are travelling, are to me oppressive. Others, and Highlanders to boot, have found Ben Cruachan oppressive, my lord, returned Ewan with meaning. For were you not told at Dunstaffnage that the name of this fine mountain above us has been adopted by the Campbells as their war cry? Lord Aveling looked at him. Your clan is no friend to the Campbells, I think. Ewan smiled a trifle bitterly. He wondered whether Lord Aveling had heard that enmity in his voice, or had learnt of it otherwise. Oh, forgive me if I seem impertinent in asking of your affairs, Mr. Cameron, went on the young man. And believe me, 
and that they are of interest to me, because of your connection with my poor brother. I understand from what you've told me, and that you left the country after the Battle of Culloden. And did you find the Highlands much changed upon your return? He was obviously inspired only with a friendly interest, and Ardroy, though never very prone to talk about his own concerns, found himself, to his surprise, engaged upon it almost naturally with this unknown young Englishman, his junior, he guessed, and by ten years or so. Yet how could he help it? The boy had Keith Wyndham's voice. And so it has been possible for you to settle down quietly, commented Lord Aveling. I am very pleased to hear it. Oh, not all of your name have been so wise. But then, your clan is fairly numerous, is it not? For instance, and that Dr. Cameron, who is such a thorn in the side of the government. Ah, you know him, perhaps. For you and had not been able to suppress a slight movement. Oh, Dr. Cameron. I, I met him in the rising, he answered carelessly. And better not to say how intimate was that knowledge, and for the young man would probably shut up like an oyster, and he was not averse from hearing his views on Archie. It seems, went on the youth, and that he's one of the pr the prince's chief agents. However, he has evidently come to the end of his tether in that capacity, or so I heard from, from Edinburgh this morning. Indeed, remarked Ewan, a little uneasily. Yes, I was told that the Lord Justice Clerk had just received information as to his whereabouts, and, having communicated it to General Churchill, had issued a warrant, which the General immediately sent to the commander of the military post at Inver... Inversnade, I think the name was. Oh, probably, therefore, and Dr. Cameron is captured by now. Inversnade, repeated Ewan, after a second or two in which his hand had furtively tightened itself on his knee. Oh, Inversnade, that's on the upper end of Loch Lomond, and there is a barracks near it. On Loch Lomond, you say, sir. I fear my knowledge of the geography of Scotland is but small. Yet, I remember that Inversnade, or something very much like it, was the name. And the prospect of this long lake upon our right, Loch Awe, is it not, is very fine, Mr. Cameron. Yes, very fine indeed, agreed his companion perfunctorily. Oh, but, excuse me, Lord Aveling, and did your correspondent say? I mean, was Dr. Cameron reported to be near Loch Lomond? A growing dismay was fettering his tongue, while his brain, on the contrary, had started to go round like a wheel, revolving possibilities. How could Archie really be in that neighbourhood? Loch Lomond was not mentioned in my letter, replied the young man. He was said to be in Glen something or other, of which I can't recall the name. You have so many glens in your country, he added, with an apologetic smile. What glen could it be? Those running up respectively from Loch Lomond or Loch Katrine. But Archie would never skulk so near Inversnade as that. If that warrant had really been dispatched from Edinburgh, for the whole thing might only be a rumour, and then all one could hope for was that the information of which it had been issued was incorrect. Ewan stole a glance at his fellow traveller. "'I'll hazard, my lord,' said he, trying to speak carelessly, and that the place was either Glenfalloch or Glengyle. 
Lord Aveling turned his head from contemplating the twilight beauties of Loch Awe. He looked faintly surprised. No, it was neither of those, I'm sure, he replied, and Ewan felt that he was upon the point of adding. Why, may I ask, are you so anxious to know? But he did not. If I could but get a sight of that letter, thought Ewan. If he only received it this morning, it is probably still in his pocket, not in his baggage. Oh, I wish he would bring it forth. Yes, the letter was probably there, concealed from his longing eyes only by one or two thicknesses of cloth. How could he induce Lord Aveling, who so little guessed of what vital interest the name was to him, to read through his letter again? It would never do to avow that interest openly, because the young Englishman would then certainly refuse, by gratifying his curiosity, to lend himself to the conveyance of a warning to one whom he must regard as a dangerous enemy of the government. For to warn Archie was now beginning to be Ewan's one desire, if he could only learn where to find him. But then he thought, despairingly, even if I knew that, and could set off this moment, how could I possibly get there in time? For if, as Lord Aveling had seemed to imply, the warrant had already left Edinburgh for Inversnade, and by the time his letter was dispatched to Dunstaffnage, and then, by this morning, when he received it there, so much farther from the capital than was Inversnade, all was over. Unless, indeed, by God's mercy, this unnamed glen had been searched and found empty, as it was rumoured had happened to not a few places in the last six months. Oh, you have no doubt destroyed your letter, my lord, he suggested desperately after a while. Desperately and, as he felt, clumsily. He saw the colour leap into the young man's cheek. And no wonder. The question was a most unwarrantable impertinence. He would reply, And what affair is that of yours? And there would be nothing to do save to beg his pardon. But no, the youth said, and he actually smiled. No, Mr. Cameron, I've not done that. Indeed, I fancy it will be long before that letter is torn up. He turned his head away quickly, and once more looked out of the chaise window, but Ewan had the impression that the smile was still upon his lips. He was somewhat puzzled. It could hardly be that the news of Dr. Cameron's possible arrest was so agreeable to the young traveller, and that he meant always to preserve the letter which announced it. There must be some other reason, and perhaps the missive contained some private news which had pleased him. At any rate, it still existed, and, as it was still in his possession, why would he not consult it? Was it, after all, packed away in his valise? I wonder what glen it could have been, hazarded Ardroy with a reflective air. Oh, I thought I knew all the glens in that neighbourhood. Which was false, for he had never been there. Lord Aveling's left hand, the nearest to his companion, made a quick undecided movement to his breast, and Ewan held his breath. He was going at last to bring out the letter and look. But no, for some unimaginable reason he was not. The hand fell again, its owner murmuring something about not remembering the name, and immediately beginning, rather pointedly, to talk about something else. It was useless to go on harping on the matter, 
even though the letter was indubitably in the young man's pocket. Perhaps, in any case, he himself was allowing its contents to assume quite undue proportions in his mind. And there had been so many of these false alarms and unfruitful attempts to seize Archie, and that much, at least, he had learnt at Invernacree, and a mere visitor to Edinburgh, an English traveller new to Scotland, was not the person most likely to possess the really accurate knowledge, which alone could cause alarm. It was some rumour of the dispatch of a warrant which Lord Aveling's correspondent had passed on to him, some gossip which was circulating in Edinburgh, nothing more. 2. So by the time they came with lighted lamps to Dalmally, and the little inn in the strath where they were to spend the night, Ewan, by way of revulsion, was almost ready to laugh at himself and his fears. Even if the news about the issue of the warrant were true, the information which had caused it was palpably false. As if Archie would lie hid, as Lord Aveling's correspondent reported, within reach of Inversnade barracks. Again, if it had been true, then, having regard to the time which had elapsed, and the extraordinary swiftness with which news was wont to travel from mouth to mouth in the Highlands, the news of Dr. Cameron's capture in Perthshire would certainly be known here at Dalmally, almost on the borders. And a few careful questions put to the innkeeper soon after their arrival, out of Lord Aveling's hearing, showed Ardroy that it was not. He sat down to supper with that young man in a somewhat happier frame of mind. The most esteemed bedroom of the inn had been put at the disposal of the guests. There happened to be two beds in it, and for persons of the same sex travelling together, or even not travelling, and to share a room was so usual that the landlord did not even apologise for the necessity. He was only overheard to congratulate himself that he could offer the superior amenities of his best bedchamber to these two gentlemen. But the gentlemen in question did not congratulate themselves when they saw it. "'How did you say that you once shared a room with my poor brother?' inquired Lord Aveling, when their mails had been brought in, and they were alone together in that uninviting apartment. "'How oh, hardly a room,' answered Ewan. "'It was but a little hut, where one slept upon Bracken.' "'I believe that I should prefer Bracken to this bed,' observed his lordship, looking with distaste at the dingy sheets which he had uncovered. "'Oh, I shall not venture myself completely into it. Oh, yet, by gad, I am sleepy enough.' He yawned. "'Oh, I wager I shall sleep as well, perhaps better, that I have done of late at Dunstaffnage Castle, where one heard the sea-wind blowing so strong of nights.' "'Yes, and I dare venture you found Edinburgh none too quiet neither,' observed Ewan idly, surveying his equally dubious sheets, and resolving to follow his companion's example. "'Oh, down at General Churchill's quarters, twas peaceful enough,' returned Lord Aveling, stifling another yawn. "'Oh, for the abbey stands. Oh, but there,' he added, beginning to take off his coat, "'you must know better than I what is the situation of Holyrood House.' Ewan's pulse suddenly quickened. As though it was General Churchill whom you were visiting in Edinburgh, my lord. Yes, mentioned the young man. I thought I had already mentioned it. And then he began to redden, 
even in the meagre candlelight, and the colour could be seen mounting hotly to his face. Oh, he's an old acquaintance of my father's. Ewan remained motionless, one arm out of his coat. But he was not speculating as to why the young nobleman had so curiously flushed. The thought had shot through him like an arrow. If he had been visiting the commander-in-chief, and then his news about the warrant out for Archie is no hearsay, it is cold and deadly truth. And probably the letter which he received this morning, announcing the fact, was from General Churchill himself. Talking amiably between yawns, Lord Aveling proceeded to remove his wig and coat. Ewan watched him almost without realising that he was watching, so overcome was he with the revelation of the identity of the youth's correspondent. And, in the same half-tranced state, he saw his fellow-traveller bend rather hurriedly over the coat, which he had flung on a chair, extract something from an inner pocket, and thrust it under his pillow. Oh, the commander-in-chief's letter, no doubt, which he seemed so oddly to guard from sight. Ewan came to life again, finished taking off his own coat, and removed his boots in silence. Meanwhile, Lord Aveling had fetched a case of pistols from his valise, and, taking out a couple of small, handsomely mounted weapons, placed them on the rickety chair beside his bed. We are not like to use these, I hope, Mr. Cameron, but there they are, to serve whichever of us wakes first and finds a housebreaker in the room. A moment or two afterwards, apologising for what he termed his unmannerly drowsiness, he had blown out his candle, thrown himself upon his bed, pulled a long travelling cloak over himself, and was asleep almost at once. Ardroy took up his candle, meaning to blow it out too, but for a moment he stood there looking across his own bed at what he could see of the sleeper. No more, really, than the back of a fair, close-cropped head half sunk in the pillow, and one slim, silk-clad foot and ankle projecting beyond the cloak. Oh, if Keith could see them together now, him and this rather charming and ingenuous young half-brother of his. Ewan blew out the light and sat down on the side of his bed, his back to his fellow-traveller, and stared out through the greyish square of the uncurtained window. Had he but known that General Churchill himself was the boy's informant, he would certainly have forced him somehow to look at his letter again, if not in the chaise, and then at supper, and to tell him the name of that glen. But it was not yet too late. The letter was still there. Here, rather, in this room, and only a few feet away. He had only to wake Lord Aveling and say, Show me the line and the word in your letter which concerns Dr. Cameron, for I'll take no denial. And then? Was the young Englishman going to accede quietly to that demand? Naturally not. There would be an unseemly, an unchivalrous struggle, ending, no doubt, in his overpowering the boy and reading the letter by force. Meanwhile, the house would probably be roused, and all chance of his slipping away undetected on the task of warning Archie, gone. And there was, it could not be denied, another method, the only prudent one. No, that I cannot do, said Ardroy to himself. 
He took his head in his hands for a moment, and then got up, fetched his cloak, and, lying down and covering himself up, tried to compose himself to sleep. And the attempt was foredoomed to failure, for he could think of only one thing. Archie, betrayed but ignorant of his betrayal, and the soldiers already on their way from Inversnate to surprise and drag him off. And here he, his cousin and friend, who had always professed so much affection for him, and into whose hands the knowledge of this attempt had so surprisingly come, lay peaceably sleeping while the tragedy drew nearer and nearer, and would not, on account of a scruple, put out one of those hands to learn the final clue. An act which, with luck, could be carried through in a few moments, and which could harm no one. But no, he was going to allow Archibald Cameron, his dead chief's brother, and to go unwarned to capture, because a gentleman did not clandestinely read another's letters. Ewan lay there in torment. Through the window close to his bed he could see a wild white sky, where the thin clouds drove like wraiths before a phantom pursuer, and though there was no sound of wind at all. It was so light a night that even in the room he could probably see to do that without the aid of a candle. So light that, outside, if he succeeded in getting away unhindered with one of the horses, the same witch-like sky would enable him to find his way without too much difficulty along the road to Tindrum and Perthshire. He saw himself riding, riding hard. Oh, what nonsense! Was he not almost convinced that the information on which the warrant had been issued was false, and that Dr. Cameron would not lie in any place within reach of Inversnade? So why indulge this overmastering desire to see the name of the alleged place? And, said the same voice, you are sure also that any action would be too late now, for the warrant sent express to Loch Lomond some days ago must either have been carried out by this time, or have failed of its purpose. In either case, the dishonorable and repugnant act which you propose is futile. And if the boy wakes while you're engaged upon it, what will you say to him? Ewan turned over on his other side, not to see that tempting sky. But could one be sure that the danger was not real, was not still within his power to avert? And was not the true dishonour to let a friend go to his doom, because one was afraid of a slight stain on one's own reputation? He wondered if Keith Wyndham, in his place, would have hesitated. Oh, yes, any gentleman would hesitate. It was an ignominious, a mean thing to do. But not a crime. It was not for himself. Had one the right to cherish selfish scruples when so much was at stake for another man? And now, for Archie's sake, then. He rose very softly from his bed and put on the clothes he had laid aside, but not his boots. And then, standing up, he took his bearing in the dim room, where Aveling's breathing showed how soundly he was asleep. The first step was to find out where the young man had put the letter. Ewan had seen him take something from his coat and slip it under his pillow. Probably this was a letter case or something of the kind, and contained the carefully guarded epistle. 
this was unfortunate, because it would be much more difficult to extricate it without waking him, though, for some obscure reason, the thought of withdrawing it from that hiding-place was less distasteful, or perhaps because it tended with more risk than that of searching the pockets of the discarded coat. Ewan could see now, if not very distinctly, the position of everything in the room, which was important, lest he should stumble over any object and make a noise. The key was in the locked door. He tiptoed over and removed it to his own pocket, since, above all things, the lad, if he woke, must not be allowed to rouse the inn. Being light on his feet, for all his stature, Ardroy accomplished this without a sound. The next step was to remove the pistols, lest the youth, thinking, not unnaturally, that he was being robbed, should try to use them. Ewan lifted them from the chair and slipped them also into his pockets. And still the sleeper showed no signs of waking. And then, tingling with repugnance, but quite resolved and unrelenting, Ewan stood over him. He could only see him as a dark mass, and began carefully to slide his hand under the paler mass, which was the pillow. Every fibre in his body and brain revolted from what he was doing, but he went on with it. It was for Archie. He wondered, as his fingers gently sought about and there, what he should do or say if the young Englishman woke. Or try to explain. Hold him down. Or half-measures would be of no use. Oh, what a weight a man's head was! Yes, Keith's had lain heavy on his arm that night, but Keith had been dying. His groping fingers encountered something at last, and with infinite precautions he slipped it out at the top of the pillow and tiptoed away to the window with his prize. It was a small leather letter-case which he held. Ardroit hastily pulled out the contents rather dismayed to find how little he could make of them in the dusk. There came out at first some banknotes, which he stuffed back as though his fingers had encountered a snake, then some papers which might have been bills, and lastly three letters, of which, peer at them as he might, he could not distinguish a word. Oh, this was extremely daunting. Either he would be obliged to light the candle, which he particularly wished to avoid doing, or he must take all three letters down to the stable with him and trust to find a lantern there to read them by. But that would indeed be theft, and unnecessary theft. He only wanted one line, one word, in one letter, and General Churchill's. Annoyed, he took up his candlestick. The problem was where to put it so that the light might not wake the sleeper. On the floor, he decided, between the window and his own bed, whose bulk would shield the flame. He did so, and knelt down on one knee by it. Oh, what a disconcertingly sharp sound flint and steel made! He had to strike more than once, too, for the tinder would not catch. At last the candle sprang into flame, and kneeling there behind his bed, holding his breath, Ardroy examined the letters. The first he took up was some weeks old and bore a London address, so he did not examine it further. The second, in a small fine writing, was dated from the Abbey, March 16th, and signed. 
He even turned hurriedly to the end. Yes, signed Churchill. Oh, but not William or James or whatever the general's name was. No, Georgina. Ewan stared at the signature, horror-struck. This was infinitely worse than banknotes, worse even than a real snake would have been. Now he knew why its recipient was reluctant to bring forth, in the close proximity of the chaise, this letter so palpably in a lady's hand, and, as the present reader could not avoid seeing, thick-studded with maidenly endearments. This was why Lord Aveling had coloured so, had repudiated the idea of destroying the epistle. Obviously he was not of the stuff of the complacent jeune homme à bonne fortune. His shy delicacy in the matter made the present thief's task tenfold more odious. But having gone so far, he could not draw back, and the writer, be she never so fond, was also General Churchill's daughter. Or niece, perhaps. No, at the bottom of the first sheet. There were two separate ones, of a large size, was a reference to Papa, presumably the Commander-in-Chief. Oh, but where in all this was the name for the sake of which he had embarked upon the repulsive business? Ewan could not see it anywhere, as, hot with embarrassment, he picked his way among expressions not meant for the eyes of any third person, which seemed, too, to show that Lord Aveling was a recently accepted suitor. But the shamed reader of these lovers' confidences did not want to have any knowledge of the sort thrust upon him. Not yet finding what he wanted, he put down this letter and took up the third. No, that was from London, and signed, Your affectionate father, Stowe. So, with an inward sigh, he went back to the love letter, wishing with all his soul that the enamoured Miss Georgina Churchill did not write both so fine a hand and so long an epistle. And just as he thought that he was coming to the place, he heard a creak from Aveling's bed. Oh, great heavens, what's wrong? What are you at there, Mr. Cameron? Are you ill? And then a further movement and an ejaculation. Oh, who the devil has taken my pistols from this chair? Ewan was still on one knee beyond his bed, feverishly scanning the letter held below its level. It was I who removed them. I was afraid, he said with perfect truth, that you might wake and, seeing a light, use them by error. And he went on searching. Oh, thank God, here he was coming to it at last. I must tell you that Papa had a message last night from the Lord Justice Clerk, informing him that Dr. Cameron... The word warrant swam for a second before his eyes, but he could get no farther, for now he was to pay the price of his villainy. Young Aveling, who must have thrust his hand instinctively under his pillow, had by this time discovered his second, his greater loss, and with one movement had thrown off his covering and was on his feet, his voice shaking with rage. "'You have stolen my wallet. Give it back to me at once, you damned lying, treacherous thief!' Ewan rose quickly to his own feet and threw the little case onto his bed, which was still between them. "'You will find your money all there, my lord.' Then, very swiftly, he picked up the candle, put it on the window-sill behind him, found the passage again, and tried to go on with his reading of it. 
but he knew that he would have the young man upon him in a moment, and so he had. "'How oh, money! It's not the money! You have my letters, my most private letters!' And uttering a cry of rage, he precipitated himself round the bottom of Ewan's bed. But Ewan, despite his preoccupation, could be just as quick. The young Englishman found himself confronted by the barrel of one of his own pistols. "'You shall have this letter in one moment, if you wait,' said its abductor coolly. "'But if you desire it intact, do not try to take it from me.' "'Wait!' ejaculated the boy, half-choking. A light with fury, for instinct no doubt told him which of the three letters the robber held. He did a surprising thing. Disregarding entirely the leveled pistol, he dropped suddenly to his knees and, seizing his enemy by the leg, tried to throw him off his balance, and nearly succeeded. For a second, Ardroy staggered, and then he recovered himself. "'Are you young fool!' he exclaimed angrily, clapped the pistol on the window ledge behind him, stuffed Miss Georgina Churchill's letter into his pocket, stooped, seized the young man's arms, tore their grip apart, and brought him, struggling and panting, into his feet. "'Oh, you young fool! I want to give you your letter unharmed, and how can I, if you persist in attacking me?' Oh, "'Unharmed!' echoed the young man, with tears of rage in his eyes. He was helpless in that grip, and knew it now. "'You call it unharmed, when you have read it.' "'I regret the necessity even more than you,' retorted Ardroy. "'But you would not tell me what I needed to know. "'If you will go back to your bed and give me your word of honour "'not to stir thence for a couple of moments, "'you shall have your letter again at the end of them.' "'Oh, my word of honour, and to you!' flashed the captive. Oh, you false highland thief! I should think you never heard the term in your life before. Give me back the letter which you have contaminated by reading at once. Ewan did not relish his language, but what right did he have to resent it? You shall have the letter back on the condition I have named, he answered sternly. If you oblige me to hold you like this. No, tis of no use, you cannot break away. God knows when you'll get it back. And if you attempt to cry for help, for he thought he saw a determination of the kind pass over the handsome, distorted features, I'll gag you. You may be sure I should never have embarked upon this odious business if I'd not meant to carry it through. Odious, his captive caught up the word. You are a spy and a thief, and you pretend to dislike your trade. Ewan did not trouble to deny the charge. He felt that no stone which his victim could fling at him was too sharp. "'Will you give me your word?' he asked again, more gently. "'I do not wish to hurt you, and I have not read your letter through. I was but searching in it for what I need.' But that avowal only raised the young lover's fury afresh. "'Oh, damn you, for a scoundrelly pickpocket,' he said between his teeth, and began to struggle anew until he was mastered once more and his arms pinned to his sides. And thus, very white, he asked in a voice like a dagger, "'How did you turn out my brother Keith's pockets before or after you murdered him?' As a weapon of assault, and the query had more success than all his physical efforts. This stone was too sharp. 
Ewan caught his breath, and his grip loosened a little. I deserve everything that you've said to me, Lord Aveling, but not that. Your brother was my friend. And did you read his most private correspondence when he was asleep? Oh, give me my letter, or I'll rouse the house, somehow. The matter had come to something of an impasse. Ewan was no nearer to his goal, for as long as he had to hold this young and struggling piece of indignation, he could not finish reading the passage in the letter. He decided that he should have to take a still more brutal step. At any rate, nothing could make his victim think worse of him than he did already. "'If you do not go back and sit quietly upon your bed,' he said, with a rather ominous quietness himself, "'I shall hold you with one hand and thrust one sheet of your letter in the candle-flame with the other.' "'How oh, you may do it, for I'll not take it back now,' flashed out the boy instantly. "'But if you give me your word to do as I say,' went on Ewan, as though he had not spoken. "'I will restore you a sheet of it now, as earnest for the return of the rest, when I've finished reading the one sentence which concerns me. "'Now, which is it to be, Lord Aveling?' "'In that extremely close proximity, and their eyes met.' The young man saw no relenting, and those blue eyes fixed on his, hard as only blue eyes can be, at need. And Ewan. Ewan did not like to think to what desperate measures he might have to resort, if the card he had just played were in truth not high enough. But the trick was won. Despite his frenzied interjection, the young lover wanted his property too much to see it reduced to ashes before him. He choked back something like a sob. I'll never believe in fair words and a moving story again. Yes, I will do it. Give me the sheet of my letter. You pledge your word not to molest or attempt to stop me, nor to give any kind of alarm. Before I do, I suppose I may know whether you intend to cut my throat, as you... But, frantic as the youth was, Ewan's face became so grim that he did not finish. I'll not lay a finger on you further. And then I pledge you my word, the word of an Englishman, said the boy haughtily. And I keep mine, as a Highlander, retorted Ewan. He loosed them at once, selected that sheet of Miss Churchill's letter, which he did not require, and handed it to its owner in silence. And the youth thrust it passionately inside his shirt, went back to his own bed, and shivering with rage and exhaustion, sat down and hid his face in his hands. Ewan, his back half-turned, found the passage again. Papa had a message last night from the Lord Justice Clerk, informing him that Dr. Cameron was said to be at the house of Stewart of Glenbucky, and a warrant was immediately dispatched to the post at Inversnade. Oh, Glenbucky! Glenbucky! In what connection had he heard of that name before? Oh, Glenbucky was. Oh, good God! Was it possible that he did really not know with sufficient exactitude? That he had committed the shameful violence for nothing? And the sweat started out all over Ewan's body, and he prayed desperately for an illuminating flash of memory. How well had that poor boy huddled there, spoken of the many glens there were in Scotland. And then the knowledge returned to him, 
bearing with it a tragic recollection from the early days of the rising, when the notoriety given to Stuart of Glenbucky's name, and by the mysterious death of its then bearer, and Buchanan of Arnprior's house, had resulted in one's learning the whereabouts of the glen from which he came. Yes, Glenbucky was somewhere in the Balquidder district, a glen running directly southward from the farther end of Loch Foyle, he believed. A long way and a difficult. And, his mind already calculating distances and route, Ewan read the passage again. There was a little more, for Miss Georgina Churchill had been at the pains to tell her lover that the person who had sent this information to the Lord Justice Clerk was someone who claimed to have recently met and spoken with Dr. Cameron. Ewan sat down and pulled on his boots. And for the last few moments he had almost forgotten Aveling. Putting the pistol in his pocket again, he went over to him. Here is the other sheet of your letter, my lord. You will not accept my apologies, I know, but I make them to you nonetheless, and sincerely, and also for borrowing the horse from Bonhaw, which I propose to do as far as Tindrum, where I hope you will find him when you arrive. If I can, I will leave your pistols there also. If not, I will pay for them. The young Englishman jumped up and snatched his letter. You'll pay for everything one day, by God, in Newgate, or wherever in this barbarous country of yours they bestow their highland robbers. And I'll have you indicted for my brother's murder, as well as for assaulting me in order to assist an attainted rebel. Since you are his confederate, you shall swing with Dr. Cameron at Tyburn. But Ewan was already unlocking the door of the room. His great dread was that the young man, strung up by rage and disillusionment to what, in a woman, would have been hysteria point, might forget his promise and proceed unwittingly to rouse the inn. He did not want to use the pistols in order to get clear of the premises, so he slipped as quickly as possible out of the room and locked the door on the outside, hearing, not without remorse, sounds from within which suggested that the boy had flung himself upon the bed and was weeping aloud. So ended, in dishonor and brutality, this encounter with his dead friend's brother, who had acted so generously towards him, and to whom he had felt so strongly attracted. A moment only, that thought flashed bitingly through Ewan's brain. It was no time to indulge in regret, or to think of consequences to himself. His immediate task was to warn Archie. To his crimes of treachery and violence, he must, therefore, if he could, add that of horse-stealing. And even as Ardroy cautiously lifted the latch of the stable door at Dalmally, away in the little rebuilt barracks near Inversnade, on Loch Lomond, Captain Craven of Beauclerk's regiment was reading the belated dispatch from the commander-in-chief at Edinburgh, which he had been roused from his bed to receive. Oh, too late to do anything tonight, was his comment. Then his eyes fell upon the date which it bore. Oh, gad, man, he said to the wearied messenger. Why should have received this warrant yesterday? How oh, the bird may be flown by tomorrow. Oh, what in God's name delayed you so? End of chapter 13
The Gleam in the North by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. In Time and Too Late. 1. The fitful sun of the March afternoon came flooding straight through the open door of Mr. Stewart of Glenbucky's house into the hall, which was also the living room, and through this same open door little Peggy Stewart, the room's sole occupant, had she not been otherwise engaged, could have looked out across the drop in front of the high-standing house to the tossing slopes beyond the Calaire burn. But Peggy had earlier begged from her mother, who had been baking today, a piece of dough, and, following the probably immemorial custom of children, had fashioned out of it, after countless remodelings, an object bearing some resemblance to the human form, with two currents for eyes. And while she sat there, regarding her handiwork with a fond yet critical gaze of the artist, before taking it to the kitchen to be baked, there suddenly appeared without warning, in the oblong of pale sunlight which was the doorway, the figure of a large, very tall man. This stalwart apparition put out a hand to knock, and then, as if disconcerted at finding the door open, withdrew it. Miss Peggy, who was no shyer than she need be, rose from a little stool near the spinning wheel and advanced into the sunlight. And, to a man who had ridden all night on a stolen horse, and had since, tortured by the feeling that every delay was the final and fatal one, stumbled and fought his way over the steep and unfamiliar mountain paths on the western slopes of Ben Moore and Stobinian, and to such a man, and the appearance at Stewart of Glenbucky's door of a chubby little girl of six, dressed in a miniature tight-waisted gown of blue, which almost touched the floor, and clasping in one hand what he took to be an inchoate kind of doll, was vaguely reassuring. "'Is this the house of Mr. Duncan Stewart?' he asked. Gazing up at this tall stranger, with her limpid blue eyes, the child nodded. "'Is he within, my dear?' Miss Peggy Stewart shook her curly head. Oh, my papa is from home. And have you a gentleman staying here? Oh, he is not here neither. Only mother is here. Instantly, Ewan's thoughts swung round to the worst. And they had both been arrested then, Stewart as well as Archie. And the noticeable quiet of the house was due to its emptiness. Only a woman and a child left there. He was too late, as he had expected all along. He put his head mutely against the support of the door, and so was found an instant later by Mrs. Stewart, who, hearing voices, had come from the kitchen. Was Autumn Miss, sir? Are you ill? Ardroyd raised his head and uncovered. But this lady did not sound or look like a woman whose husband had recently been torn from her. Hope stirred again. Madam, have the soldiers been here after any person? Mrs. Stewart's calm, fair face took on a look of surprise. Oh, no, sir, I'm glad to say. Oh, but will you not enter? At this bidding, Ewan walked, or rather stalked, over the threshold. He was stiff. Oh, thank God for that, he said fervently. Oh, but they may be here at any moment. 
he bethought him and closed the door behind him. There's a warrant out for that person. Mrs. Stewart lowered her voice. Oh, then it is fortunate that he is not in the house. Oh, he is away with your husband. Oh, no, sir. Mr. Stewart is in Perth on affairs. I do not know where Mr. Chalmers has gone this afternoon, but he will return before dark. Oh, he must at all costs be prevented from doing that, madam, said Ewan earnestly, while Peggy tugged at her mother's skirts, whispering, with equal earnestness, something about her bread merely and the oven. If he comes back here, he will be running into a trap. Oh, I cannot understand why the warrant has not already been executed, but since it is not, let us take advantage of the mercy of heaven. Oh, my own name, by the way, madam, is Cameron, and I am Mr. Chalmers' near kinsman. He must be found and stopped before he reaches this house. Oh, certainly he should be, agreed Mrs. Stewart. Oh, unfortunately. Oh, be quiet, my child. Oh, unfortunately, I do not know in which direction he has gone, whether down the glen or up it. Mr. Chalmers was going to Barquitter, observed Peggy, with composure. He told me. He said tell mother, but I forgot. Oh, mother, please put my bread many in the oven. The two adults looked down anxiously at the source of this information. Are you sure, Peggy, that that is where Mr. Chalmers has gone? Oh, yes, darling, added her mother hastily. I will have your bread many put in at once, if this gentleman will excuse me. She gave you in a look which seemed to say, oh, I'm not usually so weak and indulgent, but it is politic in this case, for if she cries, we shall get no more out of her. Yet, as it happened, indulgence got no more either, for there seemed no more for Peggy to tell when she was asked, and so Ewan stood on the threshold of Mrs. Stewart's spotless kitchen and watched with troubled eyes the consignment of Peggy's masterpiece to the oven. And, with his own boys in mind, he found time to wonder at that world set apart, and that fairy world in which children dwell, and to think how happily and uncomprehendingly they move amid the tragedies and anxieties of the other, touching them at every point, and often by sheer contrast heightening them, but usually unaffected by the contact. And then Mrs. Stewart came out, saying over her shoulder to someone within, Oh, Janet, keep the child with you for a while. Oh, Mr. Cameron, you'll take some refreshment before you start. But Ewan refused, hungry and spent though he was, for he would not spare the time. Mrs. Stewart, however, returned swiftly to the kitchen, and was heard giving orders for bread and meat to be made ready for him to take with him. And now I'll give you directions, she said, hurrying out again. Oh, yet, Mr. Cameron, I cannot think that this is true, about a warrant, for had there been any soldiers on the march from Loch Lomond's side, and the country people would most certainly have sent messengers on ahead to warn us. For I've heard my husband say that since the garrison at Inversnaid makes a practice of selling meal and tobacco to the Highlanders, and there's a canteen in one of the barrack rooms itself, many a piece of news leaks out to us that way. For this is all, as you know, what the English call a disaffected region, and Mr. Chalmers has been with us for some time, quite unmolested. And yet, in this case, extraordinary precautions may have been taken against any tidings reaching you, urged Ewan. 
and I've seen a letter from a member of General Churchill's household, which stated that a warrant had been issued on the 15th, six days ago. It was, in fact, that letter which brought me here, for I did not know my cousin's whereabouts. Oh, but they certainly know it, in Edinburgh. Someone has informed against him, Mrs. Stewart. And she was plainly shocked. Oh, sir, that's impossible. No one in these parts would do such a thing. But Ardroy shook his head. Oh, it may not have been a man from this district, but it has been done. And by someone who had speech with the doctor recently. It remains now to circumvent the traitor. Supposing the child to have been mistaken, have you any trusty person whom you can send in the opposite direction, or in any other, where you think Mr. Chalmers likely to have gone? Only the gardener, but I will send him at once up the glen. Yet, if Peggy is right, it is you will meet the doctor, though I know not how far you'll have to go, nor whether you had best... She stopped and drew her brows together. Oh, nay, I believe he ever takes the track through the wood when he goes to Balquitter, and for the path down the open glen gives no shelter in case of danger. It will be best for you to go by the wood. Oh, you saw the burn, no doubt, as you came up to the house. Follow it a space down the glen until it goes into the wood, and go in with it. The track then runs by the water till it mounts higher than the burn, but you cannot miss it. And I must tell you, she finished, that Mr. Chalmers is wearing a black wig, which changes him very much, and commonly, unless he forgets, he makes the walk with a stoop to reduce his height. But you'll be knowing his appearance well, perhaps. Oh, very well indeed, said Ewan, checking a sigh. Oh, God grant I meet him. I'm to begin by following the burn, then. He repeated her simple instructions and went towards the door. Every moment he expected it to be flung wide by a red coat. But he opened it, and there was nothing but the pale unclouded sun, almost balanced now on one of the crests opposite. The sharp, sweet hill air, and a murmur of wind in the pines below the house. On the threshold, Mrs. Stewart tendered him the packet of bread and meat, and a small voice from a lesser altitude was also heard offering him a sustentation, my bread many. It was true that this gift, withdrawn from too brief a sojourn in the oven, was far from being bread, but Ewan gravely accepted the amorphous and sticky object and wrapped it in his handkerchief. He could not refuse this fair-haired child, whose tidings might be destined to prove the salvation of Archibald Cameron, and he stooped and kissed her. And the little figure waving an adieu was the last thing he saw as he walked quickly away from the house towards the wood which clung about the downward course of the Calaire. 2. As Mrs. Stewart had said, the track through the wood was quite easy to find and follow, and Ewan hurried along it at a very fast pace, since the farther from Stewart's house he could encounter Archie, and the better. And yet it might be a wild goose chase into which he had flung himself. It might be for the sake of a mere rumour that he, Ewan Cameron of Ardroy, had assaulted the future Earl of Stowe and stolen, or rather borrowed, a horse. The pistols he had certainly stolen, for he had not left them, as he had the horse, at the inn at Tindrum, but had kept them with him, and might be glad of them yet. For though, 
Contrary to all his expectations, he was in time to warn Archie. If only he could come upon him. He could not feel at ease about the warrant, even though its execution was so strangely delayed, or believe that machinery of the kind, once set in motion, would cease to revolve. So he hastened on, and the path, fairly wide here, having quitted the stream, was full of holes crammed with damp dead leaves. Through the bare oaks and ashes and the twisted pine boughs on his left, he saw the sun disappear behind the heights opposite. As its rays were withdrawn, and the air grew at once colder, and an uneasy wind began to move overhead, it left the oaks indifferent, but the pines responded unto its harper's touch. Ardroy had lived his life too much in the open air, and in all weathers, and to be much mentally affected by wind, yet the sound tuned with his anxious thoughts almost without his being aware of it. So far he had not met or even seen a single person, but now, as he heard steps approaching, his pulse quickened. He was wrong, oh, it was not Archie, and for there came into sight an elderly man, bent under a load of sticks, which he had evidently been gathering in the wood. No word issued from him as they passed each other, but he turned, sticks and all, and stared after the stranger. Meanwhile Ewan hastened on. He must, he thought, have come a considerable way by now, and for the first time he began to wonder what he should do if he got to Balquitter itself without encountering his cousin, and to regret that he had not asked Mrs. Stewart's advice about such a contingency. It was while he was turning over this difficulty in his mind that he came round a bend in the woodland path and perceived, at the foot of a tree, a man with one knee on the ground, examining something at its foot. How was it? What looked like? Yes. He broke into a run, and was upon Dr. Cameron before the latter had time to do more than rise to his feet and utter an amazed, Ewan! Ewan! What can't be! How and why? And not till that moment did it occur to Ewan that all this had happened before, in different surroundings. Oh, I'm come to warn you, once again, Archie, he said, seizing him by the arms in his earnestness. Oh, you must come no farther. You must not return to Stewart's house. There's a warrant out against you from Edinburgh, and soldiers coming from Inversnade. And your hiding place has been betrayed. A betrayed, said Archibald Cameron, in incredulous tones. Oh, dear lad, you must be mistaken. And there's but six or seven people now that I'm in these parts, and I could answer for every one of them. And Ewan was not shaken. It was like Archie not to believe in treachery. You may think that, he replied, but it has been done. I have the fact on too good authority to doubt it. I've seen Mrs. Stewart and told her, and have come to intercept you. You must not go back there. Archie slid his arm into his. Oh, but first, my dear Ewan, I must learn whence you come and how. I know that you escaped from Fort William before the new year, but— oh, I'll tell you everything in proper time, broke in his kinsman. Oh, but in the name of good sense, let us find a more concealed place to talk in than this path. Oh, what is occupying you by this tree, pray? For at the mention of leaving the path, Dr. Cameron's gaze had strayed back to the spot over which he had been stooping. Ewan could see nothing there but some bright-colored toadstools. 
Oh, it is, I think, a rare fungus, said Archie meditatively. Oh, I should like. Oh, well, why not? He stooped and picked one, and then allowed Ewan to draw him away into the undergrowth, just there waist-high or more, and find a spot under an oak, where, if they chose to sit or crouch, they would be invisible from the track. But for the moment they stood beneath the oak tree, looking at each other, the elder man still holding the little orange toadstool between his fingers. Even though the black tie-wig, in place of the brown one he usually wore, or of his own fair, slightly graying hair, did change Archibald Cameron, even though Ewan's gaze, scanning his face closely, did seem to find there a hint of a fresh line or two about the kindly mouth, he looked much the same as when Ardor had last set eyes on him in the dark little croft up at Slochnan Ian. And, as he might have done then, he wanted most to know of Ewan's affairs. But Ewan took him to task. Are you fey, Archie, that you waste time over questions of no moment and won't believe what I tell you? Someone has betrayed you and sent information to Edinburgh which has been acted upon. To come by the knowledge of this and of your whereabouts, I've made a lifelong enemy of a man I liked, committed an assault on him, stolen a horse, and, worse than all, read a private letter by stealth. You must at least pay some heed to me and pay it at once. His concern was too acute to be ignored any longer. Forgive me, Lachin, said the elder man. What do you wish me to do? Move your quarters instantly. It means capture to return to Duncan Stewart. Archie was attentive enough now. Oh, I doubt if there's anyone else in the neighborhood who is anxious for my presence. Oh, but it would be infinitely better to leave the neighborhood altogether, urged his cousin. Dr. Cameron considered. Why might lie for a while in the brace of Baquitter on the far side of the loch? What is solitary enough there? But if the soldiers are coming from Inversnade, it would be well to avoid that direction, and better to make at right angles through this wood and up the slopes of Bane and Chihen. Yet you went to sore hearing and hard believing and that anyone can have informed on me. From whom was this letter which you... The sound of a shot, followed by a scream, both quite near, killed the question on his lips and drove the blood from Ewan's heart, if not from the speaker's own. In a moment more, as they both stood mute and tense, a patter of light running feet and the pound of heavier ones could be heard, and along the path which they had left came flying, with terror on her face, a little barefoot girl of about twelve, closely pursued by a soldier, musket in hand, who was shouting after her to stop. And both men started indignantly to make their way out of the undergrowth towards the pair, but Ewan turned fiercely on his companion. Archie, are you quite mad? he whispered. I'll stay there, and down with you. He gave him a rough push, and himself crashed through the bushes and burst out onto the path just in front of the runners. The little girl, sobbing with fright, almost collided with him. He seized her, swung her behind him, and angrily faced the panting soldier. Oh, put down that musket, you ruffian! This is not the slave coast! And the man's face was almost the color of his coat from his exertions, but at least there was no evil intent written there. 
I were only trying to stop the varmint, he explained, very much out of breath. Oh, she sent on ahead by some rebels in a farm. We marched by a while since, to carry a warning, belike. I've been a chasing of her up and down hills for the last half hour. Orders, it was. I wouldn't lay a finger on a child, and got two of me own, only fired to frighten her into stopping. Now hold her, or it shall be off again. But there did not seem much likelihood of that. The little girl was on her knees in a heap behind the Highlander, her hands over her ears. He stooped over her. Oh, you're not hurt, my child, are you? he asked in the Gaelic. Oh, then get you home again. You've done your work. You need not be frightened any more, and the redcoat will not harm you. And he took out a piece of money and closed her fingers over it. Oh, what are you saying to her? And what are you giving her money for? demanded the soldier suspiciously. Oh, I believe you'll be in league with the rebels yourself. Oh, I should scarce tell her to go home, if I were, answered Ewan with an indifference which he was far from feeling. Oh, good God, if next moment a picket should appear and search the bushes, or if Archie did not now remain motionless beneath them. Oh, I do not know what you mean, he continued, about a warning, but between us we have stopped the child, and the sixpence I've given her will make her forget her fright and the quicker. Oh, off with you he repeated to the girl. Ewan's words had no doubt conveyed to the child a sense that she had accomplished her mission, and though the eyes under the elf locks of rusty hair were still fixed on him, and her whole eager, thin little face asked a wordless question, and to which he dared not make a further reply. And then, without a sign, she sprang up and slipped into the undergrowth, apparently to avoid the proximity of the red coat, emerged from it on the other side of him, and ran back the way she had come. Her late pursuer turned and looked after her, while Ewan's fingers closed round one of Lord Aveling's pistols in his pocket. What was the soldier going to do next? If he took a dozen steps off the path to his right, he must see Archie crouched there, and if he did that, he would have to be shot in cold blood. If he even stayed where he was much longer, he would have to be accounted for somehow, since his mere presence would prevent the Jacobite from getting away unobserved. And get away he must at once. Where's your main body? asked Ardroy suddenly. And the soldier turned round again. Oh, do you think I'm quite a fool that you ask me that? he retorted scornfully. If you're one of the disaffected yourself, as I suspect you are, from speaking erse so glibly, and you'll soon find that out. And swinging suddenly round again, he went off at a trot, and the way had come. Why, had the Duke of Argyle himself speaks erse on occasions, Ewan called after him mockingly. Oh, but there was no mockery in his heart, only the most sickening apprehension. He was right, only too right, about the warrant, and the child had been sent on ahead to carry a warning, and just as Mrs. Stewart had said would probably happen. Had Mrs. Stewart herself sent her? No, the man said she had come from a farm. And directly the red coat was out of sight, Ardroy hurled himself into his cousin's lair, and Dr. Cameron was already on his feet. Are you hurt, Archie? Oh, there's not a moment to lose. He'll be back with a party, very like, 
and from the child running this way. Though, how she knew. Yes, we must make for the side of Bane and Tihen, said Archibald Cameron, without comment. Oh, that is to say, I must. You. Or do you suppose I'm going to leave you? Lead, and I'll follow you. Oh, there's no path, observed the doctor. Or perhaps this as well will not be so easy to track. For ten minutes or so, Ewan followed his cousin uphill through the wood, sometimes pushing through tangle of various kinds, sometimes stooping almost double, sometimes running, and once or twice getting severely scratched by holly bushes. But they were not yet in sight of its upper edge when Dr. Cameron came to an abrupt stop and held up his hand. Oh, listen, I thought I heard voices ahead. The wind, which had risen a good deal in the last half hour, and now tossed the branches overhead, made it difficult to be sure of this. And Ewan knelt and put his ear to the ground. Oh, I hear something, undoubtedly. He got up and looked at Archie, anxiously. If we should prove to be cut off from the hillside, is there any place in the wood where we could lie hid? A cave, or even a heap of boulders? Oh, there's nothing that I know of. Ewan, where are you going? Only a little farther on, and to reconnoiter. Oh, I'll be careful, I promise you. Meanwhile, stay you there. And he was off before Archie could detain him. It took him but five minutes or so of careful stalking to be certain that there were soldiers between them and the slopes which they were hoping to gain. There were also, without doubt, soldiers somewhere in the lower part of the wood, near the stream. If they could neither leave the wood nor hide in it, Archie must infallibly be taken. Ewan slid round the beech trunk against which he was pressed, meaning to retrace his steps immediately to the spot where he had left his kinsman, but for a moment he stood there, motionless, with a horrible premonition at his heart. Oh, God! It could not be that this was the end for Archie. A sort of blindness seemed to pass over his vision, and when it cleared, he found his eyes fixed on something farther down the slope of the wood, a little to his left, and something that he must have been looking at already, without recognizing it for what it was, a small thatched roof. It seemed like a miracle, an answer to prayer, at the least. And Ewan slipped back with all speed and to the doctor. Yes, we are cut off, he whispered, and we cannot go back. But, Archie, there's some kind of little building farther down the wood. I saw but its roof, yet it may serve us better than nothing. And let us go and look at it. They hurried down the slope again. Here the dead leaves were dry and rustled underfoot but the need of haste overrode that of silent going. And in a few minutes they both stood looking at Ewan's discovery, a small log hut. It stood on a level piece of the wood, with a little clearing of some ten yards square in front of it, but on its other sides bushes and stout hollies pressed close up to it. Why never before heard of any hut in this wood, commented Archie, in surprise. But there it is, certainly. And perhaps the good people have put it there for us. If they had, it could not have been recently, for, as Ewan saw with relief, the logs of which it was constructed, who were so weathered and mossed, 
that it was not at first very distinguishable from its surroundings. But it was in good repair, and on going round to the front, the fugitive saw that it actually had a solid, well-fitting door, which, indeed, they found difficult to push open, though it was not secured in any way. To Ewan it seemed of good augury, and that it opened inwards. Some logs, years old, lay about near the entrance. Oh, I don't know that we are wise to hide here, murmured Ardroy, but there seems no choice. And they went in. Within it was dark, for the hut had no windows. Finding that there was no means of securing the door on the inside save a crazy latch, Ewan suggested bringing in some of the stray logs and piling them against the door. So he and Archie hurriedly staggered in with several, and proceeded to lay some against the bottom, and to rear others against it at an angle in order to wedge it. Oh, but we cannot stand a regular siege in here, Ewan, objected the doctor, looking round their dim shelter. No. But if the soldiers find the door immovably fixed, they may think it is so fastened up that no one could have got into the hut, and we, meanwhile, lying as close as weasels within, and they'll likely go away again. That is, if they come at all. Oh, please God, however, they'll pass the place without seeing it, as we nearly did. Or they may never search this quarter of the wood at all. Yes, I think they'll have to break open the door to Matchwood before they get it open now, opined Archie. How oh, my sorrow, but it's dark in here. Indeed, the only light now came from the hole in the thatch intended to let out the smoke, which hole also let in the rain, so that the ground beneath, in the middle of the hut, was more puddle than anything else. It seemed as if the place had been occupied by a woodcutter, for, in addition to the felled logs outside, and there was a big but extremely rusty axe propped against the wall in one corner, and by the side of the rough bench built into the latter. Axe and bench were, with the exception of the blackened stones of the fireplace, some of which they had added to the logs against the door, the only objects there. And so, having now no occupation but waiting upon fate, and the cousins sat down in the gloom upon this bench, and it was then that Ewan realized that he was nearly famished and ate his provisions. Archie would not share with him. And now, tell me, each said to the other, and indeed there was much to tell, though they dared not utter more than a few sentences at a time, and those in a low voice, and must then stop to listen with all their ears. And Ewan learnt that Archie had come to these parts, because Lochaber and the West were getting too hot to hold him, owing to the constant searches which were carried out for him. He was, he admitted, all but captured in Strontian, when he went to Dungallan's house. That was when Ewan was in Fort William. But here, up till now, he had been unmolested, and who had given notice of his presence he could not imagine. "'And the assistance you hoped for?' asked Ewan. "'Is it to come soon?' He heard his kinsman sigh. "'I am as much in the dark about it yet, Ewan, "'as you and I are in this moment. "'I begin to wonder whether Frederick of Prussia.' Ewan gave a stifled exclamation. "'Oh, Prussia! It is Prussia, then!' "'How you did not know!' 
of Prussia, and perhaps Sweden, if certain conditions were fulfilled. Oh, but how have you not learned that? And you forget, you did not tell me that night at Ardroy, and since then I've either been a close prisoner or skulking in the wilds. One night in Appen did not teach me much, especially as my cousin Ian was away. And so, troops are to land. Ah, they were to. It was inspiriting news at first, to me and to those I visited. Oh, but time has gone on and on. Archie paused. Oh, I am totally without information now, Ewan. My communications with Loch Dorney are cut off, though I believe he is still in Scotland. But I doubt if he knows any more than I do. I verily think that if May comes and brings nothing, I shall return to the prince. Oh, talk of what is promised is windy fair to give to longing hearts when the fulfilment tarries thus. A little chill ran through his listener. He had never heard Archibald Cameron so plainly dispirited. For himself, he knew too little to proffer any encouragement, and his uncle's words about the sunset of the cause recurred to him. But he had not subscribed to them, nor did he now. It was too natural to hope. Even when months ago he had bitterly asked of the man at his side who was to lead them, he had not despaired in his heart of the coming of a day when they might be led. But, evidently, it was not to be yet. And here was poor Archie, risking his life to bring good tidings, and, at last, after months of hardship and peril, himself doubting if the tidings were true. Yes, many thousands of men were, I believe, promised, resumed Dr. Cameron, when the ground should be prepared. But the preparing of it has not been easy, and when the weeks slipped away, and I could hold out not more definite than the hopes I had brought with me in September. Oh, not that I blame the prince one whit for that, he added quickly. And they both fell, and this time quite naturally, into one of the prudent silences which had continually punctuated this conversation in the semi-darkness. It was a longer silence than usual. Ewan's thoughts went circling away. Had Archie, with all his devotion, merely been beating the air all these months? Why well, hope Mrs. Stewart has not been molested, said Archie's voice after a while. But I begin to believe that the soldiers have abandoned the search, or, at least, that they are not going to search this part of the wood. Ewan nodded. I begin to think that it is so. I wonder how soon we might with safety leave this place, or whether we had best spend the night here. Oh, I've no idea what time it may be, said his cousin. He pulled out his watch and was peering at it when Ardroy gripped his other wrist. Oh, did you hear anything? he asked in the lowest of whispers. His watch in his hand, Dr. Cameron sat as still as he with its ticking, there mingled a distant sound of snapping sticks, of something pushing through bushes, just as they had done in their approach to the hut. The sounds came nearer, accompanied by voices. Ewan's grip grew tighter, and the doctor put back his watch. 
Aye, it is a hut, called out a man's voice. Oh, come on, Cully, damn these hollies. I warrant his in here. Oh, come on, I tell you, or he may bolt for it. I'm coming as quick as I can, shouted another voice. The cracklings and tramplings increased in volume. Ewan slipped his hand into his pocket, took out one of Lord Aveling's elegant pistols, and closed his cousin's fingers over it. End of chapter 14